0: How does racism impact systems? Is systemic racism in America even a thing? Is systemic racism a reality in the church? What are the solutions? Does Black Lives Matter have them? Or are they just a critical theory-driven organization that solves problems fundamentally differently from the church? We'll be talking about that and much more on today's Theology on Air. thanks as always for listening to theology on air here on kpft this is put out as a podcast it's live on the radio uh, although it's pre-recorded these days during covid19 but uh, always on kpft thursdays at five o'clock from their hd2 channel so we thank you for listening kpft is community sponsored listener supported radio that means that we don't exist without listeners giving to kpft and supporting what we do which means that it's radio where you don't have commercial breaks every seven minutes you can have long form conversations and it's free speech radio that means we can talk about virtually whatever we want so long as we don't say those naughty words the FCC doesn't like so uh, kpft.org is the place to go if you're a podcast listener and you support this program you can go to kpft and support that Uh, as podcasters of course we don't make any money nor ask for it we don't advertise through anchor or anything like that we would want any money to go to KPFT who supports us and wants us to have this kind of programming. And especially right now, in a time in our country where tensions are very high and there are different proposals really being set forth, I think, kind of different meta narratives, even in a sense, being set forth for what we do, how we solve problems, you know, what, what, what is most important? What are, our, what, are, what are the past grievances we have to write? KPFT is a forum where we can have those kinds of long form conversations. So I'm Evan McClanahan, I'm the pastor over at First Lutheran here in Houston. I'm joined as always by, uh, with, or by Sarah Stone, uh, who is the outreach coordinator at MDPC, Memorial Drive Presbyterian Church. And we have very special guests as well. Uh, Melissa Palou, uh has joined us today from South Carolina. She and her husband, Uh, Devin are the co-chapter directors with uh, Ratio Christie at Winthrop University and York Technical College in Rock Hill, South Carolina, and they are equipping college students to defend the Christian faith as well as engaging unbelieving and skeptical students. Sean Palmer is also with us. He's the teaching pastor at Ecclesia. Uh, He's the author of at least two books, Scandalous and Unarmed Empire, and uh, Sean, I have to say that um, whenever people want to know where all like the young people are on Sunday mornings, like as in not in church, I'm like, well, they're either at Ecclesia (laughs)
1: um, or they're
0: having, they're having brunch or maybe they're combining the two in some way. A a
1: little of both, I would imagine. Okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, uh, so Ecclesia, for those who don't know, is a very popular, that's not the right word, but anyway, uh, church here in Houston and, and uh, Mm. they do a lot of really neat things there. So, um, but without further ado, Sarah, kind of come back. This is the second part of this conversation. The other one is already on the podcast feed. So what is the difference between that one and this one?
2: Yeah, in part one of this conversation, um, we really wanted to concentrate on with the current cultural moment and so many people talking about race issues and racism in America, what is the Christian's response? Um, What does it look like to view racism through the lens of the gospel? Um, And so it was a lot of individual, how has racism affected me? How can I... Um, Fight back, all that kind of thing. But today we really want to talk about bigger organizations. Where do you give your time to? Where do you give your money to? Where do you give your attention and your energy to? Um, What are the belief systems of different systems and especially the church? Where should the church be in all of this? How should we be responding, reacting, helping? Um, And so, yeah, I think the best way to start, I mean, the phrase that keeps going around social media and conversations is now is the time to be listening. So let's start by doing a little bit of that. I'm just going to ask each of you to tell us a little bit of your own story of um, how you kind of came to be where you are right now in the ministries that you're at right now, but also if you feel comfortable, how maybe one or two stories of how racism has affected you or found its way into your own life. Um, and uh, I guess we'll start with Melissa, if you're, if you're up for it. Tell us a little bit about yourself.
3: Right. So i um, 40 years old. Um, live in the heart of the South, Rock Hill, South Carolina, um, have been born and raised in in the Carolinas. I, um, so was, you know, raised in a small town South Carolina, um, didn't come to Christ until, had a, had a, um, a troubled, somewhat troubled childhood, um, came to Christ, um, at 20 years old during college and, um, that's why I'm so passionate about college ministry and, um. I just wanted to learn and study and grow as much as I could. That's when I discovered apologetics. Mm -hmm. That's how I met my husband, was actually um, through a uh, chat room talking about apologetics and and debating. And um, so, um, and in terms of um, racial dynamics and that um, my husband is Caucasian. We have a a daughter who's seven years old. Um, Again, we live in the heart of the South. I have had, in terms of my relationships with, with white people, um, I grew up in a home where my mother and father, um, we, they had friends of all different ethnicities. So from a very young age, I was exposed to all different cultures Mm -hmm. and all different people. And my best friends were white and Indian and, and Hispanic. And so, um, I, I would say that I've had maybe a different experience with race and a lot of people and that's fine and, and maybe there's some racism in my life that I did that was there that I didn't see perhaps um, I experienced a lot of, of racism or colorism that was probably one of my main issues growing up was colorism being a darker skinned black black woman um, within my own uh you know black community and and really not liking my skin color until um, I became older so um you know again my I've had um, some instances that um, that could be interpreted as racism in my life. Um, I don't know that um, I'm just one of those people who I don't know how uh, detrimental it's affected my life or my life choices, um, but I know that, again, I know my story is not everyone's story.
2: I didn't make the connection until just now that both of you are in an interracial marriage. Oh, wow,
3: okay.
2: That's cool.
1: And today today is Loving Day, if you are. It is. I know,
2: I know. It Uh, is. I remember presenting a paper on that in college and thinking, this is so recent that we were having this (laughs) argument. My gosh, anyway.
0: What's Loving Day?
2: uh, Oh, it's when Loving versus Virginia, the court case about the couple that wanted to get married. Oh. She was black and white it wasn't legal. And that's oh,
3: a precedent-setting
1: okay. case, yeah, 57, yeah. Okay. So yeah, so it ended miscegenation and a Supreme Court ruling in Virginia, um, Loving versus Virginia, and so today is the day, June 12th, that uh, that marks that ruling from. So if you've not seen the movie Loving, it's a it's a little bit of a slower movie, but of course there are all sorts of documentaries. HBO did a great documentary um, a couple of years ago on the Lovings, and, and so today is the day that that's celebrated. So um, my story is not crazily unlike Melissa's in that I grew up in the South. I was born in Jackson, Mississippi, grew up in Mississippi until I was about 12 years old. and My family moved to Atlanta. So it's been a Southern story. And I think it's very hard to have a Southern story of be African-American and not have racism permeate um, all the parts of your life. And so, I mean, if you wanted to ask, like, tell us stories, like there are stories almost under every rock, but at the same time. I grew up in I graduated high school in Stone Mountain High School and outside of Atlanta. And you might remember if you've heard the I Have a Dream speech a lot, uh, that Dr. King mentioned Stone Mountain. Now, Stone Mountain is a big stone mountain. And the Confederate used Confederacy used it as an armory hmm. uh, during the Civil War. And there's a carving on the side of the mountain of Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson and another general. So it's a place very much where The history of the South is celebrated. And Mm -hmm. but when when Martin Luther King mentioned that in um, the I Have a Dream speech, it was completely white. And when I graduated high school uh, way back last century, uh, our high school, Stone Mountain High School, was the most racially diverse high school Mm -hmm. in the state. And so we kind of lived through all of the, um, you know, knowing that that was kind of a clan rally point at the same time, this incredibly huge shift. And so as a matter of fact, um, I don't know if you saw um, our congregation debuted a video last Friday night called broad daylight. And I tell a story uh, that happened to us in our own home just this past February. We also shared the story of one of our Ecclesians, a woman named Jenny uh, who was Asian and experience that she had. At the beginning of the COVID lockdown, when a truck driver tried to run her off the street and yelled she is Asian and yelled um, to her that she needs to to get out. So, um, if you haven't found it, you can find that on the Ecclesia Houston Facebook page. And that movie is called Broad Daylight. And so, what we have seen. Um, in the course of our lives I think it becomes an awakening for so many people as they do become older and look back and just honestly like I have two teenage daughters obviously they're biracial um they um they are much more aware of uh, the racism that permeates their day than I was as a kid only because I wanted to be interested in other things but it was it was always there um, always, I mean, you, you just can't grow up where I grew up and not have that. I, when I was a sophomore in high school, uh, there was a place outside of Atlanta called Cumming, Georgia, and there were marches every day in Cumming, Georgia. i uh, not every day, every weekend for several months because it was completely white town. I can't remember what happened. That kind of, uh, was the, um, that instigated these events, but I remember there are signs in Cumming when I was in high school. So this was early nineties, uh, saying, Things like, you know, um, niggers need to be out by sundown. Um, uh, I remember during one of the marches, a Klan member calling Atlanta the nigger capital of the world. Uh, so these are places, I mean, this is within easy driving distance of where I was living at the time. So those are just experiences as a kid. I remember being in college, um, interviewing for an internship for a church that's here in Houston, not very far from where Sarah is now and where our West side campus is. And at the end of the um, interview, um, the guy who was interviewing me for the summer internship, just handing me back my resume. Like there's just kind of no chance or hearing time and time again, cause I got a, I got my undergraduate degree as in youth ministry. And I was interviewing at these churches that were not predominantly black churches oftentimes. And I can't count. I can't tell you how many times the word back to me was, we don't think you can relate to our kids or we don't think our kids can relate to you, Mm -hmm. Um, which is a way of coloring the interview process. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, the kids had not met me. I had not met any of the kids. right? (laughs) Right? So um, there was absolutely no verifiable way that you could think that, except um, you had a fundamental belief system about the way the world ought to be. Um, and what and the order of think how things ought to be so that's just a little bit of where we are
2: yeah maybe you can each just kind of talk to um, how we see the country dealing with this and for better or for worse what you think of that like we've got people protesting we've got people rioting we've got people you know calling for certain reforms some more dramatic than others so maybe just broad strokes what do you see that you're like, that's gonna help? And other things are like, that's not. Um, and then we'll move on to talking about you know specific institutions.
3: My broad just assessment um, is a lot of, con- there's obviously a lot of confusion. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of disconnect. Um, there's a lot of uh, people talking past each other right now. Um, there's obviously a lot of anger um, and things of that nature. Um, I personally, um, I protesting is, I, I believe in it. Um, I've been a part of several protests, you know, for various reasons, you know, um, throughout my, my life. And, um, um, I was, um, I was disheartened to see protests turning violent. Um, I was, um, hoping that, uh, I want, I, hoping for a more positive outcome of I mean, when you look at these deaths and, and how um, unjust that they were, um, hoping for more of, of a positive outcome that leads to discussion and um, us being able to um, connect and unify um, more so than divide. Um, I believe that the unifying factor in everything um, and the only one who can truly unify us is Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that this is an opportunity for the church to be the church and to um, uh, uh, to be different, to have a different response than the world. I think it's an opportunity for us to point people to Jesus in the process of um, standing for what's right and what's just. I think it's an opportunity for us to talk about what biblical justice is, what it looks like, and uh, to um, be a reasonable, sound, loving voice in the midst of all of the confusion rather than adding to it. Um, So I think I've seen the church um, in many ways um, kind of fail right now, this test and um, not stand for uh, biblical truth and in some ways contribute to some of the confusion. But I think it's an opportunity that I don't, you know, that we can still, uh, we can still take advantage of it. Um, So that's my my broad assessment of the situation.
2: Sean, did you want to add anything to that? Just first blush thoughts.
1: Well, obviously, I think the history of the country is pretty um, evident in that things don't change without protests. Um, Hmm. Because why would they? I mean, and and that, that happens not just in government or in church, just in relationships. If someone doesn't say to another person, this isn't right, this isn't what we need to do, ought to do. If someone doesn't actually protest the right. status quo, then nothing ever changes. Because um, if people think everything's okay, then why we don't change arbitrarily. Yeah. That's just human nature. And then another piece of human nature is human beings, especially adults. Adults don't change. This is basic pedagogy, and this is what I teach You know, preachers. Adults don't change unless they think they have to. Hmm right so that's just the way that human beings function and so what protests do is they highlight the ways in which things have to change mm-hmm. so if you you know there is a there is always a way there are always better ways to have difficult conversations but you have to have difficult conversations mm-hmm. the problem is that if you have one party in that conversation who is entrenched that nothing should change then you have to leverage tension mm. to get them to the table. So, and this has been the nature of protests. Well, um, and it's actually one of the ways that in the sixties that, uh, you know, take the Montgomery bus boycott, for instance, um, Alabama didn't change because they saw the light about segregation. They changed because the bus company was going out of business.
2: Mm.
3: Yeah. And the,
1: and the bus company said to the state, we're going out of business um, because the people who use our services are no longer using our services, so something has to change. Um, That's not something that happened because people had a really good conversation about it, that Mm -hmm. you have to ratchet up tension. This happens the same way in the church when things have to change, or in any system. Mm -hmm. When things change, they only change when it becomes unbearable for the status quo to remain the same. So when people decide they want to eat better, Uh, lose weight it probably went to the doctor who said you're going to die like all of those things um and so you can never lose sight of that so folks who say well why do we have to protest um probably we've reached the level of protest because the people who are empowered either ignored or dismissed what came before protest Um, and you know from an ecclesiological standpoint you have to be very mindful of what you believe is the role of legislation versus the role of church, and where do those intertwine? Where can we be helpful to one another? Um, you know, there have been a lot of calls as of late that say, "Like you know, only God can heal racism," which, in a sense, is very true. Like right? even King said, um, um, "A law can't make a man love me, but it can keep him from lynching me." Right. Mm-hmm. So there are two different spheres. Um, But we don't say that about other things. Like we've never said only Jesus can stop people from having an abortion. No, we work for legislation for those things, for people who really believe in those things. Mm -hmm. So we have to make hard determinations about like, why why are we treating some things in this category that are only spiritually going to be changed and other things in this other category where we need legislation and lawmakers and judges and we need the elected person who's going to. So all those things have to be discerned and we can't, part of the problem with the church is that we are so the American church is so enmeshed in America and so comfortable in American system that the status quo functionally works for us Mm -hmm. and so it's always in our reflexive best interest to keep the status quo and I think times of protest force us to ask hard questions about whether or not uh, we are on the s- side of the status quo because it works for us, or because that's the just side to be
2: on. Such a good distinction.
0: Let me let me ask about the the protest from this point of view. Uh, I think all of us would agree that protests are part of what is necessary. Um, I would make a distinction that not all not the content co- content of every protest is something that we would admire. Right? I mean, there are all kinds of bad people that protest really dumb things that we don't like. So. Mm-hmm as Christians, we'd want to determine like, well, what's the content? And so one of the things that I'm trying to figure out as I look at what's going on is that black lives matter as an organization has a lot more power now than they did say five years ago. I mean, almost overnight, you know, I see many white people, for example, the hashtag, you know, it's like we're fully on board. I read an art, an email today. uh, This is at American vision and someone was told this, they they, uh, teach in the academy, and they were basically told, they were informed by an official faculty representative of one of the institutions that I teach at, that if I do not support BLM, am unwilling to consciously address race in my courses, and I'm not willing to seek out training to learn to be anti-racist, then I'm unwelcome to teach there. That seems to be a pretty fast change from, again, when Black Lives Matter came on the scene, say, five, six years ago, where now it's almost become the orthodoxy that we have to subscribe to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'd, I'm interested in hearing about the, the distinction between the hashtag,
1: mm-hmm.
0: the organization, and those three words in that order. I don't see them as all the same thing, but maybe that's because I have white privilege and I'm, I have white supremacy, sort of, as a result of my being a white male American so but I'm but but as a Christian I want to evaluate groups and organizations and movements like this from a biblical lens and I don't want to get it wrong for fear of offending my lord I don't want to get it wrong for fear of offending my neighbor so where do y'all think I fall where I should fall uh, as a Christian because that's the only I I have a a, you know an audience of one where should I fall given your experience and thoughts on this one black lives matter
3: um i can start i mean sean and i may disagree on this um i um can tell i don't think that if you use a hashtag that you're sinning or going to hell or anything like that <laughs> um it, i think i think that it it you know is a matter of conscience but um my, my i myself don't use a hashtag um when i'm you know i'm aware of obviously i think a lot of us are aware of um you know the organization itself that 2013, Black Lives Matter. um, The the hash well the the organization became popularized by the hashtag, um, and you know during the um, the Trayvon Martin killing, which was very very tragic, um, in Florida. um, Again, um, with the guiding principles um, of the movement itself, the organization, um, things such as um, the being queer affirming. Um, being affirming, um, the uh, negative view um, of the nuclear family structure. Um, I find these things to be counterproductive to the movement itself um, and to um, the plight of Black people in America. Um, so me, myself, I don't use the hashtag. I, um, I, I don't believe that Black lives just matter. I believe that Black lives are sacred and that they're worthy because they are create because we're created in the image of God. Mm -hmm. And so my view um, of black people, brown people, white people, Asian people is much bigger than a hashtag. It's much bigger than a movement. It's connected to my Lord and Savior, who is the creator of all. And so I I don't personally use a hashtag because of my personal convictions. Um, and because I do think the movement itself is kind of productive, I believe that when I hashtag that I'm giving credence to the movement itself, which, you know, we know that's how hashtags work, you know, we, that's why we do these different campaigns and hashtag this, hashtag that. I mean, not things like, oh, you know, my kid, summertime in the backyard, you know, those kind of like just random things. But when we're talking about political campaigns or, or social movements, those things do matter. And so, um, again, I I am just, um, like I said earlier, I'm just in favor of Christians, having a Christian response, setting ourselves apart in all of this, um, having a positive, Christ-centered, biblical model for reconciliation and, and, and moving forward and m- having real solutions. I feel like sometimes with the movement itself, when it talks about justice and activism, I don't think it's clearly defined enough Um, I I believe in activism. I believe in justice, obviously, um, because I believe that all people are made in God's image and that they're worthy um, of uh, being treated fairly and equally. But um, when we're looking at our biblical standards of what is right and wrong, moral, immoral, um, those standards were held to a higher standard than the world. And so when things are not clearly defined, uh, like, you know, if it's okay with this, with movements, I mean, we've seen, you know, blocking traffic and, you know, violence and things like that. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying that the movement itself um, is saying do this or do that, but it's um, because some of, because it's not, there's no, there's no clear definitions of what, what is okay to do and what's not okay to do. There's a lot of emotion involved.
2: Sean, what about you? What are your takeaways about Black Lives Matter.
1: There are a couple of different things that need to be disentangled when you talk about Black Lives Matter. There is like the organization, which I think most folks aren't all that familiar with and kind of in grand not to get too far in the weeds. So since early on in my ministry days, um, I have come to a position on most things, which is to say yes where I can say yes. So when it deals with most people or most organizations or, or um, any group, well, one, I, I hardly ever use hashtags anyway. But the idea is to say, like, what what about this can I say yes to? And so we live in such a uh, divided and partisan world. Um, it's what Alistair McIntyre called, like, a society on fragments that we try to put together life in this really convoluted way where you have to say, like, I'm a – I'm a conservative or I'm a progressive or I'm a this. And what that tends to do to us is it makes us take on the full boat of someone else's agenda. Instead of being the person who says that I'm gonna say yes where I can say yes. Which also means I'm gonna say no where I can say no. So can I absolutely affirm the idea that I am for the liberation and the equal, the liberation of and equal treatment of black Americans Um, either in the workplace, in society, in policing, absolutely. And that part of Black Lives Matter, I completely endorse and support. So I don't need to like throw on hashtag or anything else. Um, But there are places that people who would typically um, disassociate themselves with a group like Black Lives Matter, where there are some things that they do that I would equally affirm. And, And so the idea that I, I find this just the oddest social media trend when someone says like they read a book and says, well, I don't agree with everything in this book. Well, of course you don't agree with everything. <laughs> like like either you're stupid or you think the rest of us are stupid that we can say this was worth my time and energy to invest in um, or these are the things that I can affirm. And we are so coward into being lumped in with everybody that we actually create a good deal of space and distance with potential allies Mm -hmm. because we just can't say, I'm gonna say yes to this piece of that that I can say yes to. Mm -hmm. Um, That we are actually more interested as a culture and society, and this is just America in general, we are much more interested in defining our enemies than defining our allies and what it is that we are allied with them for. Mm -hmm. And so people are much more complex than we give Mm -hmm. them credit for. And so if someone says something and you think you don't agree with it or you're a friend of theirs and they post something or they go the, the question isn't the response isn't well did you know about this about black lives matter the response is tell me more about that mm-hmm. like what about that like if you support like if you have a blue lives matter sticker on your truck um, the response is always Tell me more about that. What resonates with you about that? If I'm going to have a conversation with you about it at all, rather than to just lump folks into this category, this pre-made category, and this is the problem that American Christians are having, um, it's um, the problem of the evangelical mind. I don't know that it, you've any of you have read that book, but you probably should. Uh, the diagnosis and the problem of the evangelical mind is there's just not much of one like we do, we just don't do very much hard thinking we are really a we are a subsection of the population that is predisposed to prefabricated pre-made responses to everything and you can tell when someone is just giving you the talking points versus when someone has actually thought through their position mm-hmm. and so a lot of the questions that I'm asked aren't even really all that interesting questions to answer not the ones that you've asked but just like um. No, like, let's talk about what's really at stake for people. And like years ago, I had a church member come up to me and he says, well, don't all lives matter, which, the, which is a disingenuous question,
2: sure. because obviously they do. Yeah.
1: But what you're trying to do is you're trying to diminish mm-hmm. the black lives matter movement. Um, so why would you ask that question? Mm-hmm. Why would someone ask the question? Well, don't all lives matter. Like, is there a is there a response to that question that could, in the least bit, not be signaling of a greater virtue of the person who right. asked it in the first place? It's
2: part one of a two gotcha kind of yeah yeah. Well, so I guess this is fascinating to me because I I love the idea of saying yes to what is virtuous in any organization and saying no to what's not. Um, but I think probably all four of us would agree that that you could get to some point with any particular organization where you think, man, I actually align fully, or man, I can't have anything to, you know, if, if Hitler were to come back and start some kind of white supremacist, whatever, I think we would all be like, and we're, no, that's not us. So when we look at something like Black Lives Matter, I wonder how much, you know, sort of yes material there is to when it tips the scales or the opposite. And one of the things I've been trying to do, and I wanna hear you guys talk about this, is the philosophy behind Black Lives Matter and some of these other movements that are going on to me seems to be coming from this, uh, some people are calling it neo-Marxism. I don't know that I would use that term, but this like critical theory, cultural critical theory, critical race theory, this idea of the oppressed and the oppressors and how we've got to like flip the power on its head, which on the one hand sounds awesome, but when you start digging into it, it's got some inherent problems. So maybe can we speak to the philosophy that kind of goes into some of these liberation movements? because. I think maybe that will get at,
3: you know, where we
2: can say yes and where we can't.
3: Um, Sean, I'll let you go first.
1: Well, <laughs> I mean, when you think about things like critical race theory, like it's actually produced a lot of good conversations that we need to, conversations around things like intersectionality and thinking a little bit more deeply about how we structure ourselves. And what we're fundamentally dealing with is, I think the I think the conversation about critical race theory is a distraction from what's happening on the street. Like no law is going to be changed because of lawmakers reading and coming to conclusions about critical race theory. Um, churches aren't going to base many of their decisions, though not, not none. I mean, like you see a lot of things have changed because of critical race theory, but I, my gut tells me that it's a distraction to diminish the impact of it. And there are some things that I think are really helpful and some things that aren't and Let me pause everything for a second, yeah.
2: because we made i made um, an error in not defining terms so maybe before you continue what you're saying maybe you can okay. tell our audience just a like one or two sentence what is critical race theory i'm so sorry that i didn't do that people are like what are they even talking about
0: <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: sorry well, go ahead
1: man, it's actually pretty complicated and my wife would be much better uh at answering well, is my she question Pull her but, <laughs> the- <laughs> um like suffice it to say like this is what i want to say about it because i have actually been um i've actually been taken to task by some of my white friends for not using critical race theory enough
3: Hmm. um
1: and it's not that it's not helpful and so and that's a that's a that's another power play right if you say something is marxist like you're categorizing it in a way that makes it indefensible for people who also feel any sort of affinity toward their democratic country. So like, I, I think we need to be really attuned to the, the linguistic power plays that get worked out in these kind of discussions. Like it's just not, it's just not an honest assessment. Um, right,
2: the only reason I even threw the word Marxism in there is because I noticed that Alicia Garza, that's, she's a self-proclaimed Marxist. I think she's, that's an yeah. area of pride. So it wasn't yeah. necessarily a dig. It was just like a, this is part of the platform, I think. But maybe I'm wrong.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, it's an epistemological philosophical system um, that uses critical theory to assess, to assess society. Um, and it has a lot to do with historical power and who's currently in power. Um, it's got talks about the centrality of intersectionality in terms of race, and racism. Um, it's talks a lot about domination and ideology. If there's a commitment to social justice and defined in some particular ways, um, it's got a lot to do with experience knowledge, um, which everybody uses anyway. Yeah. Um, and um, and interdisciplinary um, ways of thinking. So all these sort of things and a, and a lot that I'm probably forgetting right now, um, kind of come together in a particular way to create critical race theory, and it's really been a hot topic among academicians. Um, but it's like, it, and it can be really useful. just look at the ideas around intersectionality, right? So I think um, the best examples actually came from my uh, 16-year-old several months ago, and she was talking about uh, a factory in Michigan. And this factory had... Um, um, was heralding how many African-American workers they had. Um, And one section, and they also were heralding how many female workers they had in like another section. But at this like engineer level, they had no African-American females. And that at each one of those intersections, and they can be almost anything, you get a different set of issues and circumstances that have to be thought through and dealt with. So I think that's really helpful. So if you take a look at so many of the c- companies, for instance, who in the last week have come out and written statements and affirmed that they believe that Black Lives truly matter, that's wonderful and great. But if you look at their board, you look at their C-suite, um, it's all white males. Well, you could say that Black Lives Matter, but it doesn't actually. So if you don't take a if you don't take an intersectional look at that, and you're just like, well. We have a lot of African-Americans or we have a lot of Asians or we have a lot of Latinx people, but uh, the the women or the men or whatever subset that you want to look at only seem to rise to a certain level. Like That's been really helpful. And so I, that's the kind of thing that I want to affirm um, versus some other things that I don't think are as helpful, but they're all in the same pot.
0: Can I jump in? And I know Melissa wants to come back on that, but um, just... To to go back to like the factory example. So here's here's a question I think a lot of people would have. Now, again, people might say, oh yeah, of course you have that question. White privilege, white supremacy. Would and this is where I'm trying to figure out like again, biblical worldview versus say an intersectional worldview. What which I I don't I think think they can be some overlap. Like right like the widows, uh like the widow of Nain, right? Had no son, had no husband. She was sort of doubly. Uh, in a tight spot. So you might say Jesus showed compassion on her. I've heard that example used. You could think of others in the Bible, but in that example, should the company have a policy that says, all right, doesn't matter who, 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 uh, who applies for this next engineering position, a black woman ought to get the job. She rises to the higher, uh, to, to, to the, the resume, you know, is, is at the top of the stack now because we Maybe it's just a show. We want to prove that we're committed to Black Lives Matter, so we do this. I, I, I don't know. I mean, is that what they should do? Because if we talk about practical legislation or something, what, what would that look like? And is that what we want? Especially yeah, we talk about systems. You
1: know? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And it's one that's frequently asked, but the answer is actually downstream. The answer, like every company in the world recruits talent from somewhere.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and so how do, how do we hire where do we go to look to hire? So a friend of mine here in Houston does training with uh, very large companies, and um, they were talking about diversity in their own in their hiring in their hiring practices. And what she heard time and time again from companies is like, "We can't find um, we can't find diverse talent for these jobs." And she said, "Well, where do you look?" And she says, "Well, most of them." Uh, come from internships you know they have great resumes because of internships Um, that's how those guys got their jobs and so she asked well what if you have a really great kid coming out of school who would be a great talent for your organization but let's say he had to work every summer and didn't have the freedom to go and get these internships that are unpaid at these companies Um, how do you find that like, and, and they didn't have, they didn't have an answer. And so the problem was not that they weren't trying to find certain people or that there weren't people who were educated to do that, that there they had a re- problem way downstream in recruiting. So how do people come to this place? And churches have to ask that question too and they look around and they see all of the same kinds of people, whether that's racial economically, educationally, um, How do people find us? Well, you attract what you are. That's, you know, that's a church growth principle that's as old as the hills, right? You attract what you are. So we have to be different. The leadership here has to be a different sounding looking leadership in order to attract a different kind of profile for their talent. And so it's not just, hey, we've got a job open down in X. Let's go find Y to fill that position. But we have to take a look at our whole organization to see how do we come into contact with people who we hire? Um, what are some tacit and overt ways that we might be signaling to some potential employee, employees that they wouldn't be comfortable or feel right about living here? And it's got to be more than just, hey, this thing's happening in the news, and we wrote a letter and posted it on social media. Like that's pretty. Um, that's a pretty thin way to be. I mean, that's a pretty thin way to be about um, the issue of actual bringing bringing about change.
2: Yeah. yeah, Melissa, I want to give you a chance to kind of go back to yeah. the question about the philosophy behind. Mm-hmm. some of the movements that are gaining popularity right now, critical race theory. What are your thoughts? And don't hold back because I know you have thoughts about this.
3: <laughs> um, well, I mean, the, the concept of critical theory, is um, we're discussing, basically individuals, um, their identity is um, parsed in groups. Um, and you're looking at a um, dominant oppressed group and a um, minority um, oppressed group. And so that can, you know, transcend, you know, race or gender or sexual orientation and these sort of things. And so you don't people are viewed through those lens. That is how you view people is not individuals, mm-hmm. and so, as, but as as groups. And so, um, I mean, there's there's some benefits to critical theory um, in terms of um, helping us, you know, we understand that um, it deals with race as a, more of a social construct, which you know we believe is is not. Um, you know, like this biological right. shame that it's, it's a social construct. Um, but then, I mean, I think what Evan was saying is that when you talk about worldview, I do think that it, that it does, um, when one does uh, uh, hold to this um, firmly and in their value system, I think that it does uh, take on a worldview in and of itself, um, because then the goal of one's um, journey in life is... Uh, liberation, um, whether that is as an oppressed or as, as the oppressed people, the goal is to liberate yourself from your power per se or to use your power to ultimately uh, liberate the oppressed people. And the oppressed people, their, um, their goal is, is liberation is, you know, from being in this, uh, you know, kind of stuck in this class. But I mean, with this with the system itself, you're always going to have, you know, the suppressed and oppressed um, oppressed and oppressor dichotomy. Um, So I don't think it offers real solutions. Um, I think, um, you know, again, in in, uh, contrast to the biblical worldview where uh, we, you know, God create individuals. you know, Acts seven tells us that God determines our boundaries, our you know where we're where we're to be from, the time in which we're born. All of that is in God's providence. That our goal is ultimately liberation from sin, union with Christ, and so through that, you know, obviously we can work towards making society um, a better place here on earth for others. But I just I think the goals, the worldview itself is different in terms of what the end result. Should look like and result that people are liberated from some social structure, and that my you know an oppressed per, a, a person in a dominant class denounces that and reckon you know, or is the the goal for all of us to be in union with Christ and unity together and working together um, in ways to make real reform in our society?
2: So I' so many questions. When you said something about the power of the oppressor, Given critical race theory, I mean, this is where the term and the idea about white privilege was born, right? Because the oppressor can recognize his or her ways of oppression. And one of those ways is to recognize, when we're talking about race, white privilege. Would you say that because you don't agree with the worldview of critical race theory, that all of that you disagree with? Do you think white privilege exists? Mm -hmm. Do you think it's something we need to spend time talking about? You know, a lot of stuff that's happening on social media right now and in conversations, even just one-on-one somebody will say something and someone else will say, well, that's your privilege showing, whether that's about mm-hmm. gender or about race. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering how helpful that is. Should we be doing that? Should we be looking for places where there are privilege or is there a next step we should be moving? I mean, talk through that a little bit
3: with me. Yeah. It's, I mean, I think it's complex. I think that, um, yeah, I think it's all tied together with, with, you know, when one does find critical theory, then yes, you, you are um, looking at, you know, privilege and, and that um, from the, you know, particularly with race, with, with white people. And then um, there's a sense in which white people have to understand. And I think, you know, even earlier with Evan, as he was talking and he's like, well, maybe that's my white supremacy or that maybe that's my privilege talking. And so um, that's kind of how everything, I mean, I'm not saying that you you adhere to that, Evan, but you were trying to, as you were navigating the conversation, just asking questions. But that, that tends to be how everything is interpreted mm-hmm. is, well, maybe, um, maybe I can't say that's wrong, or maybe I can't, uh, disagree with this person, or maybe I can't, um, you know, call this into question or, or anything like that because I'm white and because, um, my whiteness is a, um, I'm blinded by my whiteness. I need, uh, when you talk about things like white fragility and, um, it either, um, coming to the terms that you, um, uh, just, um, you know, when we talk well, I guess we should go back and just talk about privilege itself. Um, I think there's different kind of privileges mm-hmm. in life. Um, I think there's an American privilege. Mm-hmm. I think that there is a two-parent home household privilege. I think that's probably the biggest privilege that one can have. Um, mm. Is that bad? I don't think that those things are bad. Does that set you up for more success in life? Absolutely. Um, so I think that um, what tends to happen is we look at, the disparity. I'm not saying that there is no. Um, I'm not saying that 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 the theory of white privilege is is um, innocuous or, or that it's of no effect. Um, I'm just saying that we we tend to over uh, oversimplify things when we look at racial disparities and we say we look at things like economic, economics, social economics, and um, you know household incomes and uh, college educational levels and private business ownership and things like that. And we look at the disparities or, you know, maybe incarceration rates and things like that. And so the narrative, um, you know, becomes, well, it's obviously white people have some sort of privilege and that's why they're, they're, these disparities exist. Um, and I think there are, are unfair laws, you know, that we need to work on to reform um, to make life, you um, you know, like for instance, I work with uh, yes you know, with inmates and, and doing ministry with inmates. You know, there's things that we can do to help them to uh, uh, to transition back into society better and things like that. Let but me, um, at the but same just time, just for the
2: sake of time, I want to yeah. hear Sean's uh, thoughts on white privilege and, and any other of those kind of concepts that came out yeah. of. But then I do want to get okay. us to what is the church? Uh, what do we need to get to doing? But right.
1: so, yeah. What comes to your mind with white privilege? Yeah. So um, the mis- the misconception about white privilege is that it means that that white people who reach any sort of level of success didn't have to work, mm-hmm. and white privilege isn't about work. Hmm. White privilege isn't about blessing like a lot of other things that are a blessing. Um, white privilege is fundamentally about access. White. When we talk about white privilege, what we're talking about is an adv- an advantaged access to things like resources, money, education, and social status. So here's a great example just from the last week. Um, uh, here's a, a picture of privilege, right? So um, when George Floyd died, um, there wasn't too long, and this happens every time that there is an unarmed black man who's killed, that what we quickly see from certain quarters is a recitation a rehearsal of their past, everything that they ever did wrong. But when Brock Turner rapes a girl at Stanford behind a dumpster, he gets a light sentence because of what he will be, of his potential.
2: Mm.
1: And so this is a picture of white privilege is that that whites are seen for what they can contribute. Mm. And Blacks are seen oftentimes for what they've done in the past. Right. And so like that, that's about access to a certain social standing, a social standing that is rooted in American slavery and segregation and lack of education. So if you just take, I mean, I went to, I learned just in the last year how actual money works, because when I started thinking about the things that I will be able to pass on to my children, because my parents' generation were the first generation in both both sides of my family to be able to accumulate any wealth. And it dawned on me like, oh, this is why my white friends in college, that's why their parents were able to pay their rent and to send them money because they didn't start out not just at zero, but under zero Mm -hmm. when they came into the world. And that is a privilege that is rooted in an economic system that for most of the history of the country, has tried very diligently to keep black people as a permanent underclass. So when we talk about white privilege, we're not just saying, we're not saying um, you never had to work for anything. White privilege doesn't mean that you don't um, suffer. White privilege means that you have a level of access because of both history and social standing and being the dominant culture that not everybody else has. Like there are some presumptions made about your goodness, right? So we saw this last—we saw this, this past week too, where you, you've got this uh, police force out very upset because they feel like they are good police officers and they are being lumped in with these bad police officers. Well, that's what every unarmed black person, every person who's not committed a crime, who gets questioned by the police, gets questioned by the police in their own home, as I was on February 9th of 2020, about whether I had warrants out on me, that's exactly how they feel. But there's a, and you know, the Harvard, I think it's Harvard or Princeton has the implicit bias study, the test that you can take. That implicit bias is part of white privilege. So it's not just about whether or not each of us as individuals have some good things associated with who we are. Mm -hmm. It's about this pervasive access that everybody doesn't have. And that pervasive access is granted to people based on their skin color.
0: We only have a couple of minutes. We have like four minutes. So each of you take about two minutes and uh, we can go longer on Facebook. But for the podcast, like I said, we're going to try to keep it to 58 minutes. Mm -hmm. Give us, what do we do in that situation? What do we do? I mean, what can we do? I think that's something that a lot of people feel like like I can't snap my fingers and make this all change. I only have so much influence. I only I only can do so much. And I'm a Christian, so we're doing this show from a Christian worldview. We're limiting I'm limiting it to that. I'm not going to borrow from I'm not going to borrow from critical theory unless it unless I can really, co- you know, correlate it to scriptural teachings. Um but what can we do as Christians on all these issues? What what would that look like?
3: I mean, I think that again, we need to, um, look different than the world. I think that, um, we, uh, I think the, um, the individualization of, of, indiv- of people and not placing, um, part of it is that we're, people have have the sense of guilt and that they're not doing enough or that they can't do enough. And so they're starting already from this position of helplessness. Hmm. And I think that, in our daily lives, as we're living as believers with one another, I think that those interpersonal relationships, I think that loving our neighbor is ourself and teaching that modeling that to our children and um, doing that as we go about our lives, um, reaching out to people in need and, and mentoring and all these things are just things that we can do in our sphere of influence. We can only do so much as individuals, right? Um, and so I feel like with Christ's power and love that we just, we go out and we love like he loved mm-hmm. and we do what he did and we show his, you know, we're his hands and feet. And that might seem like it's an oversimplification, but, um, I think it, uh, it's a lot, um, it's a bib- more biblical concept than people walking around feeling guilty about their skin color or feeling, um, oppressed about their skin color, but actually, um, seeing one another through the lens of, uh, you know, the image of being created in the image of God. And that as we do that, we we model that to the world. And that that's, you know, you know, in the limited time, I would say that that was, that's a a major change that we can impact, you know, affect in our communities and in our lives. Sean, what about you?
1: There are a couple of things there. I think first of all, you have to start with that Every Christian has the same responsibility, right? When, and and this is rooted in um, the incarnation. So what does Jesus do? This is Philippians 2. Like when you when you have the power, your job as a follower of Christ is to leverage that power for the benefit and blessing of other people. It starts in Genesis twelve. Like you are blessed to be a blessing. So re- regardless of where you are or who you are, like your call is to do that. And then you fold into that that humility is a fundamental posture of Christianity, that you have to enter into everything with humility. And third. I would say we really need a fundamental rethinking of what the gospel is, because what has happened in the American church is that we have misread, I think, what and I'm not the only one who thinks this. So it's not original to me. Um, Like the the biggest problem in the church in the first century was the church. And the biggest problem in that church was how are Jews and Gentiles supposed to get along together? It's in every letter of Paul. It's the central feature of what he's writing about. It's why he takes a collection in 1 Corinthians 8. When Paul gets around to writing Romans, Romans 1.17, and for that, that great passage, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, what is he not ashamed of? He's not ashamed of this fundamental belief that God has done something in Jesus Christ for which Jews and Gentiles will now be together as one people. That is what God is doing. This is Ephesians 2, that Jesus himself is the, breaks down the dividing wall of hostility between us. So that's a fundamental issue of the New Testament. I bet if you walked into most churches in America right now and you asked them, what's the central issue in the New Testament that Paul addresses, they would not name that issue. They would name personal sin. And the Bible hardly speaks at all about personal sin in comparison to corporate sin. Most of the use in the New Testament, most of the use in the Old Testament are plural. It is talking about corporate sin and how do we live together as people? We have such a, we have, Americanize the gospel of it, to such an extent that we believe this is about individual flourishing. And that's not at all what the Bible's trying to do. And I'm not the first person who's ever said that. I mean, that's, know, yeah. un- if you've taken Greek, you, you know that, right? So you've had that great, you know, declension word, pos, 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 upon, like you say it so many times you have to learn it so deeply because the use in the new Testament are plural by and large. And so it is talking to The fundamental idea of what's happening in the scriptures are how are these people going to live and get along together under the banner of Christ. And if you take that and you twist it into what's happening under my roof and personal piety, you are missing a huge chunk of what the New Testament writers are getting at.
0: Podcast listeners, we are out of time, so we're going to keep this conversation going a little bit longer. We don't want to hold our guests too long, but uh, find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Theology on Tap Houston, because Theology on Air at KPFT uh, is a ministry of Theology on Tap Houston. So for all of our guests, for the podcast, we'll see you next time. Uh, We want to encourage you to question freely, think deeply, and disagree as needed.